0: This episode of Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Ting.com. Ting gives you big savings and billing clarity for mobile phone service. Try their online savings calculator and save $50 on your device purchase at lexiconvalley.ting.com.
1: From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 16, titled Our Dying Words, wherein we discuss what it is we might lose when a language goes extinct. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bob. How was your week in New York with uh, electricity? Oh, my gosh. Electricity is so great. You know, I didn't have any here at my house, so I made this unplanned excursion. Uh, You might call it a power trip (laughs) to New York, and they had all this electricity, and it was so great. I made my computer operate with it. We ran the studio with it to do on the media, and there was some illumination going on, which I didn't have in my house. We took the air and conditioned it with the electricity. I am totally down with electricity. You know, if I were ever to take up one of the trades, I would want to be an electrician. Like as a handyman or, you know, Mr. Fix-It? No, just as a profession.
0: I think being an electrician sounds really appealing, but it's not the path I chose.
1: I did not know that about you, and you, my friend, are an enigma. Yeah, maybe one of these days I'll come by and rewire your house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a splendid idea. Hey, listen, on this subject of the New York trip, I got this letter, Mm -hmm. email, and let me cut to the uh, relevant portion here. At the end of the last episode... David Whitehill writes, you said something along the lines of I have to catch a train to New York. The podcast form uses the pretense of live radio, even though it is by definition listened to after the fact. That is actually somewhat unique. On TV, you would never see Charlie Rose say to Kofi Annan, I'm sorry we have to end this interview as I have an appointment for a manny pedi <laughs> Anyway, this strikes me as a unique situation grammar-wise. You might make an argument that you should have said, I will have had to catch a train to New York. <laughs> Maybe this tense, which always makes chronological sense to the speaker, but never makes sense to the listener, needs its own name. And he suggests, does David Whitehill of Brooklyn, New York, documented prior predictive... Of course, the tense already has a name. It's called the Future Perfect. You want to know what I wrote back to him? (laughs) What's that? I thanked him and then I said, I may read this on what will have eventually been regarded as this week's show. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, well, Future Perfect.
0: Okay, so uh, over the past month, as we've noted on prior shows, some of our listeners have very deftly, very slyly, at our behest, incorporated rhetorical devices into their iTunes reviews. Ichabod Spoonbill wrote recently on iTunes, What? An erudite podcast that discusses a topic without descending into a tedious gabfest. A podcast about language that's not snobby, boring, or prescriptive? A podcast about a possibly tedious subject that's never once tedious? Say it ain't so.
1: <laughs> All right, Mike. As we've established, I, I don't have a very good track record for identifying these various figures of speech. But I do know a rhetorical question when I hear one, <laughs> or in this case, a series of rhetorical fragments from Mr. Ichabod Spoonbill. Yeah, and the rhetorical question
0: is also known as erotema from the Greek root for to ask. Mr. Spoonbill, here, as you notice, strung together a series of rhetorical questions. So maybe we should call this serial erotema.
1: Erotema sounds like a serial. It sounds like a cereal that you would spoonbill feed to a child.
0: It also sounds like a sex addiction diagnosis. Yes, it does. <laughs> All right, today's show. A few weeks ago, Google launched something called the Endangered Languages Project, which is intended to help linguists record and preserve languages that are most at risk of disappearing.
1: We're not talking about brand name languages here, right? We're talking about obscure languages where there's you know, a few thousand or hundred speakers still living.
0: Yeah, exactly. And there are many individuals and small groups all around the country and around the world already dedicated to this. What this project has done is create what they're calling the Alliance for Linguistic Diversity, essentially bringing together dozens of these smaller groups and providing a kind of central place on the internet for them to communicate and share and catalog our most endangered languages. So, for example, the World Oral Literature Project is part of this new alliance, the Center for American Indian Languages, the John
1: Carter Brown Library at Brown University, my alma mater, and many other groups. I'm kind of surprised, Mike, that this is a new development. Everyone's been working ad hoc. Was there some particular trigger to harmonize the effort? Google has
0: the resources and the storage capacity to get something like this off the ground. And so they did. They said that they will hand over control and oversight of the project to linguists who are a part of this alliance. Now, here in North America alone, there are hundreds of these endangered languages, including ones that were once very vibrant, languages like Comanche and Crow and Navajo. But for many languages, it's already too late. And you know, we could argue about what constitutes extinction, but by one measure, a language is extinct
1: when nobody speaks it anymore. Well, dude, that kind of seems self-evident, that it's extinct when nobody speaks it anymore. Unless, you know, kind of like Jurassic Park, its DNA can be uh, reanimated somehow. So if a language is written down, can it ever be truly extinct?
0: That's a good question, actually. It's sort of a philosophical question. I mean, by... The measure that I just stated, a language is extinct if nobody speaks it anymore, you could say that Latin is extinct, although I think there are still a few holdouts who speak Latin. But Latin is so well-documented, I mean, I took it for four years in high school, it's so well-documented that we're in no danger of losing the grammar, of losing the vocabulary of Latin. But most of the world's endangered languages aren't nearly as well-documented as Latin, if at all. So when the last speakers of most of these endangered languages die, that language is not only dead too, but lost forever, which makes these preservation efforts all the more vital. As I mentioned, one way to help document these languages is to record them. For example, a few years ago, a woman named Boa Sr. was the last living speaker of a language called Bo, which is native to the Andaman Islands in the Indian Ocean. For years before she died in 2010, recordings were made of her to preserve not just the vocabulary and the grammar of the Bo language, but also things like the ancestral songs that only she knew at that point and that would otherwise be forgotten. Now, you and I, Bob, did a short segment on the public radio show that you co-host on the media last year posing the question, what do we lose when we lose a language?
1: Yeah, and if I remember correctly, either I was playing the devil's advocate and trying to be a foil for you, or just kind of like a reactionary jerk and saying, uh, so a language dies, so what? Well, only you know the answer to that question. <laughs> Which was it? Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you the truth, it's probably a little bit of both. But it was, it was an illuminating conversation, and like the electricity of New York City, You were doing the illuminating.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, we spoke at the time to a guy named David Harrison, who is a professor of linguistics at Swarthmore College. And he's also the director of research for a group called the Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages. That organization is now part of this new alliance that just launched a few weeks ago under the auspices in part of Google. So I thought we should replay the conversation that you and I recorded last year. Yeah, I'm done with that. But before we do that, I want to mention our sponsor for this week, Ting.com. Ting is a new mobile service that has as its core mission billing clarity, usability, and savings for mobile phone users. It's built on the Sprint network, and here's how it works. Megabytes, minutes, and text messages are all billed separately. If you use less than you anticipated, you're automatically credited for the difference at the end of each month. If you use more, you're automatically billed for the additional amount. No premiums, no penalties, and you don't pay for more than what you use. Go to lexiconvalley.ting.com and use their online calculator to enter your usage and cost for the last few months, and Ting will tell you how much you can save. That's lexiconvalley.ting.com, where you can save money and better manage your mobile phone
1: usage with Ting. Ting, tang, walla all the bing bang.
0: Okay, here is the conversation, Bob, that we had last year. It runs about eight minutes or so.
1: All right, let her rip. There
0: are somewhere between six and 7,000 languages currently being spoken on Earth. The most conservative estimates are that about half of those will be extinct in the next century. And the most dire estimates are that 90% of them will be extinct and it won't even take a century. We're not talking, of course, about English or French or Italian or Chinese or Russian. We're talking about languages that, by and large, you've never heard of. If you think about the 80 to 100 biggest languages in the world, they're spoken by about four and a half billion people. Now go to the other side of the pyramid, the 3,500 or so smallest languages in the world. They're spoken by less than 10 million people. Those are the languages that are going to be going extinct.
1: Well, one way to look at it, it seems to me, and maybe the most hard-hearted is when Boa Sr. died and when, as a consequence, Bo, the language, disappeared from the face of the earth. It it was clearly a loss, but what sort of loss? I mean, if a language dies in the Andaman rainforest and nobody is alive to notice it or need it or use it or remember it does it matter
0: i had a conversation recently with david harrison he's a co-founder of the living tongue institute for endangered languages and he travels all over the world talking to so-called last speakers he told me that there are 3 kind of categories of human knowledge that we stand to lose when we lose these languages
2: first and foremost it's about human history mythology the stories the beliefs the ways that people have interpreted their existence.
0: Okay, let's call this first category cultural knowledge. There are people all over the world who have in their native language the equivalent of, say, Homer's Odyssey. Um, I don't know who wrote Beowulf. I don't think anybody knows who wrote Beowulf. Beowulf, maybe. And they've never been documented. One of Harrison's linguistic areas of expertise is the native languages of Siberia. And he has spent a lot of time among a people there who speak a language called Tuvin. And on one trip, an elder recited for him an 8,000-line poem from memory that Harrison told me was about a young girl whose brother dies in a hunting accident.
2: And she sets off on a magical quest accompanied by her talking horse. And she has to fulfill various feats of strength and win the hand of a princess who is then going to bring her dead brother back to life.
1: Okay, so Mike, I know you're going to think I'm a Philistine, but we lose the Tuvan-Mr. Ed story. Does the earth still spin on its axis? Think of it this way. About 200 or so of the
0: world's languages are written. The rest, including Tuvan, are only spoken. So I think that Harrison feels this sense of urgency. If we lose these myths and creation stories, then we lose pieces of the puzzle of humanity.
1: An insight into understanding humanity itself. Exactly. Okay. So that takes care of culture. Second category we'll call
0: scientific knowledge. I remember very distinctly in like fifth grade, another kid telling me that Eskimos had a gazillion words for snow. That isn't quite true, but turns out, says Harrison, that the Inuit people of North America have almost 100 words for sea ice. Now, having 100 variations on the theme denotes a really sophisticated knowledge of that theme, knowledge that is not transferable to other languages. Another example that Harrison used was from Siberia, a language called Tofa.
2: So if you use a word like chare in the Tofa language... Chare means four-year-old, male, domesticated, uncastrated, rideable reindeer. Um, Now, that's a concept that I can express in English, but notice that English does not give us the efficiency of a single word that means all of those things. And so you have to view this as a kind of technology. Languages are an adaptive technology that allow people to survive in their environment.
1: Okay, I get that. But it's one thing to slice and dice the physical world in more ways in one language than another. But that's not really the same as science. That's not the same as knowledge. What do we lose if we lose the male four-year-old non-gelding reindeer that's rideable? What you know about
0: your environment plays an important role in how you name and sort that environment. So we here in the West have a tradition of taxonomy that's based on the fossil record, based on our ability to retrace the branches of evolution. Other people elsewhere in the world have their own taxonomies and their own way of sorting their environment based on what they know. For example, there is a people in Brazil who speak a language called Caiapo, and they divide up the bees in their region into... You know, 50-some-odd what we would call species. And I just want to read to you the criteria by which they divide up these insects. Flight patterns, aggressive behavior, sound, habitat, geometry of nest structure, shape, color, markings, smell of the bee. There's some guy running around with a really swollen nose. (laughs) Quality and quantity of honey, edibility of larvae, quality of wax, and more. These people know a hell of a lot about bees, and what they know isn't necessarily built into our taxonomy.
1: Okay, uh, that covers culture and science. What's the third leg of Harrison's language preservation stool? The third category we can
0: call simply straight linguistics. For example, in English, typical word order for sentences is subject, verb, object.
1: I climbed a tree. Yeah,
0: subject, verb,
1: object. I mean I haven't climbed a tree in years. That was just an example. Gotcha.
0: Now there is a word order that is the exact reverse of English, object, verb, subject, that is extremely rare, and we may not have thought it even possible had we not found it in languages that are really endangered. Tree climbed I. A tree climbed I, exactly. You might say that in English if you were being poetic or rhetorical, but it's not sort of standard English word order. But it is standard in a language called Ururina, spoken by a native people who live in what is now Peru. Now, there are countless examples of languages that do sort of quirky
1: things that we would never have guessed languages would do. You know, once we know what is possible, so what? What's the benefit to humanity to find out what the rest of humanity is up to linguistically?
0: essentially what you're asking me, Bob, is what is the point of knowing any information unless you can use it to some end? You know, we can shred up whole categories of academia, history for that matter.
1: Oh, snap. Okay, look, (laughs) let's just make our roles clear here. My role is to be the bad cop and your role is to be the good cop. So I'm just going to put you down for enlightenment is good for humanity. And I'm going to just, I'm going to step away from the car, sir. Step away from the car. So that was the
0: conversation we had last year. As you mentioned, Bob, you sounded a bit skeptical
1: at times. You know, now now that I hear it, Mike, I still don't remember whether I was truly that skeptical or whether I was just uh, posing to create a little, you know, dramatic tension, probably a bit of both. But you can mark me down for enlightenment is good, too. You know, I thought about this
0: in the last several days quite a bit, anticipating that your skepticism remained and that that was, in fact, how you still felt. And I think that an apt analogy for me is species endangerment. So if you think about just species that are most like us, other mammals, it turns out that there are about the same number of mammalian species on the planet right now as there are extant languages, in the neighborhood of 6,000, give or take 500 or so. Your life, Bob, won't be any different if the bumblebee bat, for example, goes extinct. But... Biodiversity alone, I think, makes that species worth fighting for. And, you know, I bring up the bumblebee bat because it happens to be what is likely the smallest mammal in the world, which is an interesting fact about the bumblebee bat. It's just an inch long. And it, I think, enriches us to know that such a creature exists. Likewise, I think that even if an endangered language could be said to have nothing earth-shattering culturally or scientifically or linguistically, to use David Harrison's three pillars, nothing earth-shattering to impart, it's still worth the effort to document it because, it because it honors, in a sense, the effort of the people who spent centuries or more developing it. Language is such an incredible human achievement that to so cavalierly let such an achievement go undocumented seems verging on irresponsible.
1: Well, of course, Mike, you're right. And I appreciate and uh, admire your passion. You know, I'm glad that you're in touch with the non-electrician part of you. (laughs) Can you hear me climbing down off my soapbox now? (laughs) Careful, don't trip. It's quite a distance (laughs) to the floor. All
0: right. You can write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. If you love the podcast, the single most important thing you can do to express that love is to subscribe to our feed, for example, in iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. I want to thank David Harrison. He is the director of research for the Living Tongues Institute for Endangered Languages, which is now part of the Alliance for Linguistic Diversity. You can find their website at endangeredlanguages.com. I want to also thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's
1: podcast. All right, Mikey, we done here? Yeah, we're done. Later, Gator.